0: Hey there, dear listener. Welcome to episode six. As always, I'm your host, Andrew Scott Willis, and hey, I hope your January is treating you well. I'm really excited about this episode. The Iron Giant is one of the great classic animated films of our generation. It's an incredible story that has an incredibly rich backstory. One that defied the odds of Hollywood and gave us something magical that we all get to discover in our own right. But before we get into it, as always, let's crack a beer. Spoilers ahead, this is the Movie Brewer Podcast. All right, let's take a look at our beer. I have in front of me Save the Robots, an East Coast IPA from Radiant Pig Craft Beers. Save the Robots. I think the connection here should be fairly obvious if you've seen the Iron Giant. Radiant Pig is a brewery that's been around since 2013. It was founded by Robert Pill and his girlfriend Larissa. I hope I'm pronouncing those names correct. Rob was an avid home brewer who was brewing beer in his Manhattan apartment, which anyone who's ever lived or been to a Manhattan apartment can tell you can't be a uh, comfortable setting. Rob and Radiant Pig in general became gypsy brewers. Uh, A gypsy brewer, for those who don't know, is someone who doesn't have a brewery to call their own. It's a person that brews their beer in various other breweries' equipment Based on whatever they can find and whatever's available. Um, Radiant Pig works extensively with a brewery in Bloomfield, Connecticut called Thomas Hooker Brewery. And the difference really between a gypsy brewer and like a contract brewer, where they're, you know, they just say, okay, yeah, we'll brew your beer, give us the recipe, et cetera, is that Rob. Is very avid about brewing the beers himself. He's very hands on with his recipes and making sure that any beer that comes out of Radiant Pig is is made right and made as he intended. Uh, Save the Robots itself. Here is uh, it's an IPA. Um, we're looking at about a seven percent uh, ABV. I have a tall boy in front of me here and. We're looking at Mosaic, Citra, Galaxy, Amarillo, and others in terms of the hop count in here. So it's kind of all over the place. We've got Australian hops in there. We've got American hops in there. All over the place. I'm told that this is a big IPA that drinks easy. So I'm going to crack it and let's see. All right. So quick review here. The first thing I have to notice off of this is the smell. Um, very citrusy, very, I feel like there's notes of pineapple in there, but also kind of, I don't want to say earthy, maybe piney. It's a very nice golden color. Um, I, I would venture to say, what up Massachusetts? Like it's a Bruins gold in terms of its color. And it's got about maybe two or three inches of head on the top. It's a nice, you know, it's a nice pour. It looks like you would imagine a beer in like a stock photo to pour out of. So I'm going to go ahead and take a taste here and see what we think. And that's good. That's, that's really good. I feel like every beer I review on here, I'm kind of very... uh enthusiastic about but also i'm picking beers on what i think i'd enjoy so you know that can't be terribly unexpected but that's really well well balanced very citrusy very fruity up front you can taste the ipa of it uh in there and it has a bit of an alcohol kick to the end of it but nothing really overwhelming so overall like hey a nice i'm gonna enjoy sipping on this as we talk about the Iron Giant. I wish I had a better segue to that, but hey, here we go. So, I'm gonna start us out, as I always do, with a quick synopsis of the film, and we'll go from there. The Iron Giant is set in the fictional town of Rockwell, Maine, in 1957, in the middle of the Cold War. We're talking a world where Sputnik has just launched, paranoia between America and Russia is at its peak, and a giant robot has crashed to Earth in the woods of Maine. He's quickly befriended by a boy named Hogarth Hughes, a local boy who's always getting into trouble, and sort of takes the Iron Giant under his wing and tries to teach him the ways of being human? Question mark? While all that's happening, a government man named Kent Mansley comes to town to investigate the possible disturbance, see if it's maybe a Russian spy or something, and... It begins to unfold on there as as Kent tries to discover what's going on with the robot, eventually finding out that there is indeed a robot and calling in the military to stop him. Uh, it all comes to a head with uh, the government calling in an airstrike to destroy the gentle robot. So the Iron Giant has a very in-depth history. The original story comes from a book by a poet named Ted Hughes called The Iron Man. Hughes wrote the book in 1968 to help his children deal with the aftermath of the suicide of their mother. Uh, Their mother was noted poet Sylvia Plath. Plath committed suicide in 1967 and left both Hughes and her children in this sort of state of unrest. And the book really focused on the notion of being torn to pieces and learning to pull yourself back together again. Uh, The Iron Man, the book, had a similar setup to The Iron Giant, but was also a very, very different as soon as you got into the second and third acts. It involves a dragon from space. It involves the Iron Man uh, choosing to go and defend the Earth from this dragon. It's a very different kind of thing. The book, The Iron Man, was picked up in 1989 by Peter Townsend. Peter Townsend, you may know as one of the founding members of The Who, and he took it and adapted it into a musical. The soundtrack to The Iron Man uh, by Peter Townsend is still available on Spotify. I recommend you check it out. It's very odd. It's very of The Who, but you can sort of start to see the points of the storyline coming together. So, the musical was put up as a stage production at the Vic Theatre in London in 1993, which is where it was first noticed by Warner Brothers. Uh, They approached Townsend and eventually optioned the play to be adapted into an animated musical film. The project then proceeded to languish in production purgatory for, for several years. Um, I do want to pause here for a moment because it's important to understand at this point where the animation industry was. To give you a quick rundown, for the longest time, Disney was the king of animation. The old masters of Disney made some of the greatest animated films of all time. We're talking about the likes of Dumbo. We're talking about Snow White and Pinocchio. However, in the early to mid 80s, all of those greats began to retire and we went back into a sort of animation dark age. Think movies like The Black Cauldron and The Great Mouse Detective. Fine films, but not on the same level as some of the classics. And because of this, from a studio point of view, animated films weren't really profitable. It was a thing that was part of the the zeitgeist of the age, but you, it was a tough sell to anyone looking to make money off of film, which is, you know, what studios do. But then, in the beginning of the 90s, Disney found their way again and stepped back into the spotlight, which is when we started getting films like The Little Mermaid, like Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, The Lion King, films that rewrote the script and proved that not only could these films be profitable, but they could be massively successful. And in this turn, they created sort of a gold rush scenario with all of the smaller studios trying to step up and copy Disney's success. Uh, And I'd like to ask my listeners right now, hey, all the smaller studios trying to copy Disney's success, does that sound familiar to anything going on these days? Dot, dot, dot. So with this gold rush mentality, we see Warner Brothers trying to convert Peter Townsend's Iron Man musical into something animated with a wide appeal. Enter Brad Bird. Brad Bird has been a name in the animation industry for a very long time now. You most likely know him as the director of films like The Incredibles, of Ratatouille, randomly Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, sure, and of course The Incredibles too. Bird had been an intern at Disney in the 70s, when he was 14, when he was very young, this was like the very, very beginning of his career. And he had worked with all of those old animation masters, you know, the people that were working on those classics. After his internship, he went to college and after college, he found himself back at Disney, uh, hoping to sort of pick up that ball and carry on the legacy of these Disney masters. But he found none of the same magic that he had felt when he was younger. There were, not necessarily looking to make good films so much as just churn out profitable animated projects. So after a massive confrontation with all of the executives at Disney, Bird left the company. After a little while, as this animation boom began to take hold, he was picked up by Turner Broadcasting. Turner Broadcasting brought him on for a film called Ray Gunn uh, that he was working on that was kind of never really became much, was just sort of a contract that he was working on to get through his his time. But then in 1996, Turner merged with Time Warner and became the Warner Brothers that we sort of know today. Uh, And that was when Brad Bird first came in contact with the Iron Man project. I do want to take a sidebar. I guess I'm in a sidebar. So a sidebar to my sidebar. Brad Bird, um, in the 90s, lost his his sister to gun violence. And this was not long before the making of The Iron Giant. Um, in trying to put together the pieces and reason and make sense of the lost, he came up with the core concept of the film. What if... A gun, had a soul, and didn't want to be a gun. And that was something that was already stirring within him when he came into contact with what would be the Iron Giant project. And that was really the guiding light that brought the story into focus for him. So when Brad Bird comes into the picture on this project, he comes in with a new approach. The characters of Dean and Kent Mansley these weren't in the original book these were characters purely of his own creation to drive the story along he immediately dismissed the concept of a musical he had his concept of what warner brothers could be in terms of its relationship to what disney was he saw disney as the fairy princesses and mystic knights and etc 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 and Warner Brothers had that opportunity to be a little more PG and a little more, like, stern and oomph with its its projects. And that he brought to the executives with his pitch. And he pitched with such passion and zeal that the Warner Brothers executives were like, yeah, that sounds fantastic. They not only approved the project, but they gave him an extremely wide berth in which to create. And to be clear, a wide berth... In terms of creativity, but not necessarily time or budget. So this is the part in the podcast when I usually talk about casting. With animated features, usually casting's not quite as important. You know, you're you're working with a, a team of actors that is not there for nearly as long as they would be on a regular production. But nonetheless, Warner Brothers being swept up in this second coming of animation success, wanted to have a hit on its hands. You know, that's what all studios want. And it insisted that Bird audition many, many of the big names of the day. Um, Particularly important to the studio uh, was considering John Travolta as Dean and Arnold Schwarzenegger as the government man, Kent Mansley. I personally can't imagine Kent Mansley portrayed by Arnold Schwarzenegger, but I've talked on this podcast before about how studios saw actors like Schwarzenegger as critical to box office success in the 90s, and this is no exception. Bird did take on Jennifer Aniston as Annie Hughes, arguably the biggest name that actually came out of the production. She was, this was 1998, nine. This was the peak of her friend's career, you know, and she was actively making that transition from... Television to a bona fide movie star. Um, we also get Harry Connick Jr. as Dean, who was constantly teetering between acting and his music career. And then, of course, we get Vin Diesel as the Giant. Most notable at the time for his role as Private Carpazzo in 1998, Saving Private Ryan. He was still a year away from the Chronicles of Riddick and two from the Fast and the Furious franchise that would make him. Uh, an uber mega star. We also get uh, Christopher McDonald as Kent Mansley, who I think plays the role fantastically. I guess this is the second podcast in a row with a Christopher McDonald role in it. So props to that. Um, But yeah, so like I said, not a huge deal with the casting here. With animated films, the vocals become important, but also... Kind of just another gear in the machine uh, that makes it go. So after the passion and zeal that Brad Bird presents to the executives at Warner Brothers, he's given the green light. Most of the time in a production of this size, you'd be looking at five years for the production, you know, to get it storyboarded out, to get it drawn, to get it animated, colored, vocalized, finished, et cetera. You're looking at a five-year period. The Iron Giant was given two and a half years. In terms of a crew, all of the major A-list animators had been scooped up by Disney for this new generation of animated films. They were working on Aladdin. They were working on The Lion King. Bird and his team had to make do, and I don't mean this in any way to discredit their talent, but had to make do with an island of misfit animators that where they were able to put together with the limited budget that Warner Brothers had given them. For many, it was their first feature film that they'd ever done, first project bigger than some small animated short that they put together with friends. But it was a group of people out with something to prove, and that gave them unity. Unbeknownst to them at the time, they were also sort of, pioneering a new form of pre-visualization. Normally in animation, what you'll do is you'll put together a massive storyboard that gives you a breakdown of each shot, gives you an understanding of what you're looking at in each scene before you animate it. Instead of simply storyboarding on the Iron Giant, they actually created moving animatics with a new program called After Effects. After Effects, as you may or may not know, is now a massive industry standard for all kinds of special effects work. But at the time, it was Bird and his team using After Effects to pan up, pan down, pan left, animate head moves, animate all kinds of different things to better pre-visualize the production because that was what was really becoming important here. Knowing how the story was going to play out before... You actually spent the time animating, save them a ton of money, a ton of time, and really help them handle that expedited timeline that they'd been given by Warner Brothers. The other thing worth noting here is that the giant was the first character in an animated film to be completely three dimensionally rendered by a computer. It was at the point that the technology was advanced enough that they could do it and make it look like part of the rest of the film. They made special modifications to it so that there were imperfections in the actual rendering of the giant. So that it looked more like a hand animated production versus, you know, the sterile 3D rendering that you can see sometimes even in films today. And the other thing you have to consider is the size of the giant in this production. When you're talking animation and you're talking something of that scale, usually an animator can have a hard time successfully expressing the sheer size and weight, weight especially of something like that. Whereas a computer can handle that with no problem. You say, hey, this object weighs X in this scene and it keeps it constant. And no matter what kind of action you do, it stays the same. And that's really where the benefit came. Um, I'm going to take a step aside again for a moment and talk about Warner Brothers. So with this resurgence of animation, Warner Brothers was looking to make a big statement. And they were looking to do that with a film called Quest for Camelot. Quest for Camelot was supposed to be their coming out party. It was meant to stand up to Disney. It was meant to show that they were as big a player as anyone else and that their films were worth your box office dollars. Quest for Camelot had a lot of the same themes as a lot of the Disney movies. It was about a prince and a princess. It was a musical. It had witty animal sidekicks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then it completely bombed. The film made $22 million in its entire run against a budget of about $40 million. That's terrible. You're not even coming close to recouping your costs. You just, ooh, Tough. Uh, It was released on May 15th, 1998. And that was about a year before The Iron Giant was due to be completed. So with that catastrophe of a film, and I apologize to any of the filmmakers out there, but like, oof, rough. Warner Brothers was a little bit skittish about The Iron Giant. Brad Bird was very intense and very intentional with his direction of it. And, you know, it made them a little bit nervous. So much so that they wouldn't give it a release date. The animators and the team kept creeping closer and closer to a finished product, but had no finish line to aim for, particularly. And if you don't have a release date, critical marketing deadlines can't be committed to. With a film like this, with a lot of animated films, merchandising becomes a huge part. And if you can't say that this film's going to come out on X day... You can't make the commitment for a McDonald's toy, or you can't make the commitment to Toys R Us about a line of Iron Giant toys. Without that timeline, no one can, can move forward. And Warner Brothers wouldn't commit, and they seemed to just be sitting on the movie trying to see what would happen. It was at that point that one of the most important moments of the Iron Giant's production happened. Out of desperation one of the producers leaked an unfinished version of the film to a reporter for a website called Ain't It Cool News. I don't know how familiar you may or may not be with Ain't It Cool News, but it was one of the early, early film review sites. It was known for releasing behind the scenes footage before it was done. It was known for rallying the early, early days of fan bases on the internet. And The reporter that they leaked it to, Drew McLean, published a piece calling it one of the best movies of 1999. He claimed that Warner Brothers didn't seem to know what a gem of a film they had, that it's a great American classic film, and Warner Brothers is working against their own self-interest by not committing to it. And with that, suddenly a lot of attention started getting garnered online, the Ain't It Cool News fan base jumped into action and said, tell me about this movie. Tell me when it's coming out. Tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. And in an unprecedented move at the time, Warner Brothers actually took note of the internet and started looking around at each other going, hey, this might actually be something. And they were shaken to the point that they actually scheduled a test screening in April of 1999 And that test screening produced the highest test scores that Warner Brothers had had in 15 years. Um, And suddenly they're paying attention. Suddenly they realize that there's something about this movie that people are responding to. At that point, Warner Brothers was like, hey, let's push it a year and we'll do a proper marketing campaign and we'll go from there. But Bird was adamant. They said, no, like we're going to do this now just because you guys are late to the party doesn't mean that we haven't been working and preparing this film for two years. And also there's something to be said for, hey, you can't let this internet buzz about this film die. If the only reason you're paying attention in the first place goes away, there's always a chance that you might just shelve this in the future and then it'll never get released. And suddenly we have a release date set of August 8th, 1999, which gives them just about four months to market the movie. So fast forward four months, the movie comes out to rave amazing reviews. To this day, it still has a 96% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, but the marketing just never connected. Brad Bird tells a heartbreaking story about going to the theater on opening day And expecting to see all of this marketing material in place, expecting to see the Iron Giant logo above the times that the movie is playing, expecting to see huge banners, and instead seeing promotion material that's been thrown in the back by the exit of the theater, and then walking in to the theater itself and seeing an almost empty theater. It's really heartbreaking, especially considering that this is the Iron Giant. Like, remember, we're talking about the Iron Giant, and this movie bombed at the box office. Its opening weekend is $5.7 million. In its 16-week run, it only made $23 billion against its $70 million budget. Heartbreaking, honestly. You know, all of the people associated with the film knew from the beginning that they had something special. There was a hope that the internet buzz would be enough to put people in the theater, but the reach just wasn't wasn't there. And it's a sad end to a seemingly Cinderella story. But of course, time would have the last laugh. The Iron Giant is, to this day, an incredibly well-known and beloved film. I remember seeing this film when I was 13 years old, and there's some movies that I've seen over and over again that I can quote endlessly I've seen The Iron Giant probably four or five times since it came out, not huge. But all of those classic lines, all of that story is there. It's embedded in me because it's an inspirational movie. It deals with themes that make you think even at a young age. And it's really something that just speaks to all of us on some level or another. Um, yeah, it's a damn good movie. Anyone who's seen it knows what I'm talking about. Um, and that's what I got for The Iron Giant. I'm <laughs> getting a little emotional even just talking about it because, you know, it's such a generation-defining film. Um, it's worth noting that The Iron Giant came out just about four months after the Columbine shootings and, you know, really spoke to a country that was asking questions about guns and asking questions about violence and offered a perspective for a lot of people to contemplate. But I digress. Here we go. Let's um let's bring it back up for a second. I'm going to take another sip of beer. So, I'm going to run through my quick facts for those who have listened to the podcast in the past. You know these are just the the quick easily digestible notes um, about the film that I think are worth a takeaway. So we'll start out with this. Director Brad Bird personally animated the scene with Hogarth drinking espresso uh, because he always makes sure to animate at least one scene from his films. He wants that close contact to the production. Sean Connery and James Earl Jones were both considered for the voice of the giant, which... Is interesting to think about because all told the giant only really says in the entire production 53 words the license plate on the car eaten by the giant reads a one one three the giant later eats the three off of that but it's worth noting the background of this a one one three is an inside joke uh, an Easter egg in dozens upon dozens of animated films created by the alumni of the California Institute of the Arts, of which Brad Bird is one. You see this in all of the Pixar movies. You see it these days in most of the Disney animated films. There's always some sort of reference to A113, and it refers to a classroom at the California Institute of the Arts uh, that is used by the graphic design and character animation students. It's a, an ongoing running joke with that group of people that now that I've said it and you've heard it, you'll start seeing it everywhere. So the Iron Giant opened ninth at the box office to 5.7 million. Like I said, not a great opening, which is, you know, disappointing. The top that weekend was the sixth sense to which I would usually say something sassy like, oh, yeah, it's The Sixth Sense or something like that. But it's worth noting that The Sixth Sense also wasn't really a boon of a movie until word of mouth spread, so that opening weekend is not really necessarily because of this massive release. Iron Giant was the 85th highest-grossing film of 1999. The highest that year was Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, which was one of those giant boon of a release movies, but also I'm going to pause one last time and say, Hey, um, at some point, go take a look at the movies that came out in 1999. There's a great book by Brian Rafterty called best period movie period year period ever period. And he's not wrong. Like to give you a sense of the movies that came out in 1999, we're talking the matrix fight club, Being John Malkovich, The Blair Witch Project, The Sixth Sense, Magnolia, American Beauty, Star Wars The Phantom Menace, as I said, Office Space, American Pie, The Mummy, Ten Things I Hate About You, The Green Mile, Galaxy Quest, the list goes on and on and on. Arguably the most incredible year for film releases and any year would be hard pressed to beat it. So I'm gonna come back to my beer here, back to my Save the Robots. I've saved a little robot for the end. That sounds weird. This beer is uh, aging pretty well. You know, it's getting a little more, it's getting a little more bitter as it warms up, but nothing out of control. Um, it's really well balanced. It is interesting to note, Radiant Pig Craft Beers, the name there comes from two different places, the first part being um Rob and Larissa's favorite artist, Jean-Michel Basquiat, who's also known as the Radiant Child. There's your Radiant and the second part of the name comes from the pair's affinity for great food, pigging out, uh, if you will. Smash those two words together and you get Radiant Pig Craft Beers which I'm certainly glad to be drinking through one of these right now. So that'll wrap it up for me on this episode of the Movie Brewer Podcast. As always, you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The Movie Brewer. Um, You can read my movie reviews on Letterboxd and my beer reviews on Beer Advocate. As always, again, I'd love to hear any suggestions you have on movies with a great backstory that you'd love to hear me explore Uh, or beers with a great taste, or any combination of the two. I hope you'll listen in in the next couple weeks uh, for our next episode, but for now, go out and see a movie and think about all those people that work themselves ragged to get it on the screen. Once again, my name is Andrew Scott Willis, and this has been episode six of the Movie Brewer Podcast. Thanks for listening.